take out a piece of paper. I'm going to give you a Christmas pop quiz this morning and see how much you know about the Christmas story. Just six, uh, sorry, seven, seven quick questions. How much you know about the Christmas story? We'll go through all seven, then I'll go back and we'll, we'll talk about the answers. And this actually does tie in with where we're going in the message this morning. So, uh, first question, true or false? For as long as it has been celebrated, Christmas has been celebrated on December the 25th. True or false? Don't answer them out loud. Don't give the answers away. Especially not you, because you probably already know most of the answers, because we talk about these kinds of things at home. Um, All right, Uh, number two, true or false? Mary and Joseph were married when Mary became pregnant. Mary and Joseph were married when Mary became pregnant. True or false? Um, Number three, who told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? Who told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? Number four, how did Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem? Number five, what did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph? This is multiple choice for you. So did the innkeeper say, there's no room at the inn? I have a stable that you can use. Come back after the Christmas rush. Um, Or it was both A and B. Or E, none of the above. Number six, what animals does the Bible say were present at Jesus' birth? And number seven, where do we find the true story of Christmas? I mean, besides, you can't just say the Bible. Like, specifically, in the Bible, where would you find it if you're going to go find the answers to these, which we will give you right now. So number one, Alec, go ahead, what's the answer? True or false, as long as Christmas is celebrated? False, yeah, it wasn't until about the 4th century um, A.D. that Christmas was celebrated on the 25th. The Pope um, issued a decree in about the 4th century that said that that would be the official day we would celebrate Christmas um, on December the 25th. Uh, Number true, true or false, Mary and Joseph were married when Mary became pregnant. Anybody have a guess? False, that's right, they were betrothed. They were not married, but they were betrothed. We're going to talk a little bit more specifically about what betrothal uh, means uh, a little bit this morning. Uh, Number three, who told Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem? Anybody have a guess? It was not an angel. It was not Herod. It was Caesar Augustus. Uh, Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus put out a decree that all the world should be taxed, and that's what led them to have to go to Bethlehem. Uh, Number four, how did Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem? If you said a donkey, you've seen too many nativity scenes. We don't know. The Bible says absolutely nothing about how they traveled to Bethlehem. Probably they walked. Chances are Mary and Joseph didn't own a donkey. Um, We know from like when they took Jesus to the temple, when he was uh, like seven days old to, to dedicate him, the offering they gave was turtle doves, which means that Mary and Joseph were probably very poor, couldn't afford a donkey. Most of the donkeys were owned by people who were rich in that society. Uh, number five, what did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph, A, B, C, D, or E? You know what? We don't know. There, there's not even a mention of an innkeeper in the Bible. 
The Bible simply says there's no room for them at the inn. But all those Christmas pageants you've seen where the innkeeper comes to the door, and I've played that part, and says there's no room. Innkeeper never said anything. And we're going to actually talk about what the inn was this morning as well. Um, number six, what animals does the Bible say were present at Jesus' birth? And everybody's getting weary now, because you know that all those scenes you've seen with donkeys and cows and stuff, we don't know. The Bible says nothing about any animals being there. Um, present at Jesus' birth. And so if you're going to find all these answers in the Bible, what books would you go to? Does anybody know? Matthew and Luke. And we're actually going to look at both of those this morning as we discuss this. But my point in, in doing all that this morning is that way too much of what we tend to associate with the Christmas story comes from years of tradition, comes from all those Christmas pageants you've seen, all those Christmas carols that we sing. But in reality, a lot of what we think we know about the Christmas story really has very little to do with the actual true Christmas story that we have um, in the Bible. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, what really happened that first Christmas um, over 2,000 years ago. Because that first Christmas was not the, the neat, clean, tidy sanitized story that we're so used to hearing. That, that first Christmas was a really dirty, messy, scandalous event. And a lot of what happened then can really be lost on us today if we don't understand the world that Jesus was born into and the situation um, that he was born, in, born into. So this morning, my goal is hopefully to help us recapture some of the awe, some of the wonder, um, you know, some of the, the, the mystery and all those things that surround that, that true first Christmas and what happened there. And I want to try and help us do that this morning in a couple of ways. Um, first, we're going to look at some of the historical and cultural uh, context that surround the birth of Jesus Christ, particularly as it relates to Mary and Joseph and, and their, their relationship and what they went through in becoming um, the, the earthly parents for Jesus. And then second, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus Christ and how that demonstrates God's love for us. Because my goal this morning is that we understand that the greatest example that we can have of God's love is the life of Christ, beginning with his birth. So if you have your Bible, um, our main text this morning is actually going to be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there and... Um, that's where we'll be, but we're also going to spend a lot of time in the Matthew and Luke as we look at the story as well. But let's pray as we get started. Father God, it's a, a joy and a privilege every year that we come to this time of year and we are able to remember the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, that you sent him here to earth to live and ultimately be the sacrifice for us. And as we celebrate Christmas this year. May we remember that it's not just about a baby that was born and laid in a manger. But that baby came to earth to be the savior of the world. May we remember that and as we think about that this morning, help us to know and understand in maybe a new or a deeper way or just be reminded of your amazing and incredible love for us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So this morning, as we talk about the Christmas season, like I said, I want you to think about how much God loves you. And we're going to start there. It's just thinking for a couple minutes about the love of God this morning. Because as we focus on the love of God, God's love for us is something that, that's amazing. It's something that is immeasurable. It's, it's, all, it's boundless for us. It has no limits. It's a love that's without end, and it's a, a perfect love. I mean, most of us don't know what it's like to be loved perfectly, but that's how God loves you and I. He loves us perfectly. I love this prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, Paul's praying for the Ephesians. And this is a prayer that I come back to again and again as I'm reminded of it and and pray it for for my family. And I pray it for, for people that I know. And Paul prays, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul's Paul's prayer is that we would know the love of God which is immeasurable, which knows no bounds, that we would just begin to grasp the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of that love of God. And that God would give us the strength to comprehend that so that we could be filled with the fullness of him. A vital key to our being filled with the fullness of God and who he is is to begin to comprehend that his love that surpasses all knowledge. And I think that's part of the reason the Bible places such an emphasis on us knowing and understanding and living out the love of God. I mean, just listen. I'm, we're not going to go to each one of these. I don't have time to dig into them. But just listen. A thumbnail sketch of just a few places where the Bible emphasizes God's love for us. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Timothy, that the goal of our instruction is love. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, that the author of Hebrews writes, that as we gather together, our goal should be to spur one another on to love and good deeds. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter writes that above all, we should, be, we should keep on loving one another earnestly. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul writes about faith working through love. Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, somebody comes and asks Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. The greatest commandment. In our text this morning, 1 John chapter 4, in verse 19, John writes that we love him because he first loved us. So our love for God and our love for one another has to flow from our understanding of and our experiencing of God's love for us. And the greatest example that we have of God's love for us is the life of Jesus Christ. And that begins in this Christmas season as we think about the birth of Jesus Christ. So 1 John chapter 4, I'm going to read, we're going to look at first verse 7 through 9 and verse 14. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. 
And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then jump down to verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has the Son to be the Savior of the world. God showed his love for us when Christ came to earth as a baby. And last week, if you were here last week, we talked about the idea of worship and how we, why we worship God because of his greatness. And we talked about God, and we looked at some verses that talked about God being a God that is holy and eternal and all-powerful and all-knowing and how he's everywhere present and he's infinite. And all of those things are true of Jesus Christ because Jesus being fully God was all of that. And he chose to come to earth and be born in very humble circumstances. And just to give you a glimpse of that, just let me give you a few um, bits of cultural and historical context uh, surrounding the birth of Christ. Some of the stuff you might be aware of, some of it might be new to you this morning. But it, it, we really have to start, if we want to understand the cultural historical context of Jesus' birth, we have to start with Mary and Joseph and kind of the marriage customs of the day and what was going on there. And the first thing we have to understand is that people back then were married much younger than they, were, than they are today. Um, for a young man in that culture, typically they would be married sometime between the ages of um, 14 and 18. Because a young man, after his bar mitzvah, when he's about 12, 13 years old, then he would go out and he'd begin to learn his trade so that he would be able to support his family and his future spouse. Um, and then when he was ready to do that, then his family would go and they would, they would choose a wife for him. So most likely, Joseph was um, 14 to 18 years old, although there are some church traditions that suggest he may have been a widower, so it's possible he was as old as maybe 30. But most likely, culturally, probably in his, in his late, mid to late teens. Um, women were typically married even sooner than that. Um, they were usually married as soon as they were considered old enough to have children. So usually ladies got married around 12, 13 years old. So, and what would happen when, you, when children were ready to be married, the, the two families would get together. It was going to be an arranged marriage. And the two families would meet together and they would um, negotiate what was called the bride price. And the bride price was a price that the father, um, the father of the groom would pay to the father of the bride that would basically be compensating the bride's family for the lots that her leaving their family to join the new family as, as a bride um, to compensate them for that loss. It acknowledged that loss. And once that price, once they'd sat down together at this meal and they negotiated the price, the price was agreed upon, then that agreement was sealed with a drink, um, the, the, the father of the groom would probably bring a, a drink with him, bring some wine and a, and a glass, and they would, the, the two fathers would share that glass together. And then the, the groom would, would take the, the glass of, of wine that the, the fathers had drank out of to seal the, to seal the um, agreement for the marriage. And then he would propose to the bride by offering the bride the same glass that he drank out of. And as the bride took that and, and drank from, from that glass, um, that would be symbolically saying that she was agreeing to, to marry him. And it was, it was a covenant that was made between both the families and the bride and the groom. Um, and, they would, and when that was proposal, that covenant was accepted by all the parties, 
then the two uh, young people, the, the, the future bride and future groom, were considered betrothed. And it was, it was a marriage contract. So it was, it's a lot, it was much more binding than, say, you know, like engagement would be in our culture. It was considered a binding legal contract between the two family, two families. And, and the time that a couple would be betrothed to one another would usually be about one to two years. And that was a time for them of preparation. For, for the young lady um, up in the gallery region, they, they would, the young lady would probably go home. Um, well, actually, let me back up before I talk about that. Um, go to the next, let me see if the next slide, if I'm tracking where I'm at. Go ahead, go to the next one. Okay, we talked about betrothed, go to the next one. Should be a picture. Okay, this is a picture of basically up in the Galilee region where Mary and Joseph were from. The families lived in a unit called an, an insula. That was the, the dwelling place where they lived. And so the father of the family would have like the main house in this insula. And around it, there's a number of rooms that are built onto the main room around this central courtyard. And so when Mary and Joseph would have been betrothed, culturally, typically what would have happened is the groom would go back home and he would begin to build on to the insula a room for he and his future bride that they would have shared as part of the, the, the family um, context. And he would spend that year or two of preparation time preparing and building the, the room that he and his wife and family would ultimately share. And when that room was complete, the father would come to him and say, your room is done, now you can go and you can get your bride. And then they would go and that's when the wedding ceremony um, would have taken place. Um, something that's kind of fascinating, a little bit of a sidelight, you know, we did communion um, last week. The, the parallels between communion and the whole marriage ceremony and everything that happens here are crazy. You think about Christ and the cup of wine that he took and then he handed to his disciples. The church, we are the bride of Christ. What did Jesus say to his disciples in that time when they asked him where he was going? You know, in my father's house, my father's insula would have been the word that he has said, are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back. Same type of thing. That's a lot of what's going on here in this situation. So Joseph goes away. He's preparing the room. Mary goes back to her family. She's preparing herself to be the best bride that she can be, the best wife and mother. And, and she's learning from her own mom, from her grandma, from her aunts, about everything that it's going to take for her to, to be the best wife that she could be so that on the day that Joseph came, she, she would be ready to be the, the, the wife and ultimately the mother um, that she needed to be. And this, this period of betrothal, this one to two years where they're both preparing themselves, it's also an opportunity for them to demonstrate their purity and their faithfulness to one another. Okay? Now, that's really important to think about as in the cultural context of what happens next, okay? Because with that setting in mind, think about what happens in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38, which is the first part of the Christmas story that we usually come to. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. 
And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So during this betrothal period, when Mary is supposed to be demonstrating her purity and her faithfulness, preparing for marriage, now this angel has come to her and told her that she is going to give birth to the Son of God, that she is pregnant. And what's Joseph going to think in the midst of all that? Joseph, of course, the first thing that he's going to think is the most obvious explanation. Sure, Mary's given him this story about how this is, you know, the Holy Spirit came and I'm still a virgin and this isn't really what you think, Joseph, but... You know, I mean, what are most of you going to think? What would Joseph have thought? Obviously, Joseph thought, no, Mary, you've been unfaithful. And so Joseph, the Bible tells us that he, he had the right to have Mary, it says, put away um, quietly. Because it actually, I mean, that's a pretty polite way of saying it. The right that Joseph had, I don't know if you realize this, the right Joseph had in that context, because in the cultural context, with Mary now being pregnant, it would have been seen as she, by being unfaithful, which obviously she wasn't, but that's how it would have been perceived, she would have been seen as having broken that binding legal contract between their two families, that betrothal contract. And so Joseph had the legal right to have Mary put to death, but not only Mary, Joseph would have been within his legal rights to have both Mary and her father put to death because that contract was between all of them. Joseph could have done that because it appeared the betrothal, betrothal contract had been broken. But the Bible tells us that Joseph was a righteous man and he didn't want to hurt Mary. He didn't want revenge and he was willing to resolve the matter quietly without publicly disgracing Mary. And then he receives a visit from an angel. And that's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, listen to this. This is what the angel says to Joseph. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph, although he had the right to have not only to have Mary put to death or just to divorce her without any consequence, he responds to the angel by taking Mary as his wife. But one thing that I think we also miss in the whole context of that, by making that agreement, by taking that step to take Mary as his wife, in that culture, Joseph would have been seen as basically admitting to, you know, having been unfaithful and having committed adultery with Mary before they would have been officially married. In the eyes of the people of the city, when they saw Joseph make that agreement, it would have been seen as him saying, it was me, I'm the father of Mary's baby. So not only did he not distance himself, he made himself appear guilty of committing adultery with Mary. And that would have resulted in an immediate binding declaration of marriage without any of the usual celebration. And it would have brought disgrace to Joseph and his family. So the birth family of Joseph, we have these two young kids, teenagers probably, that have now been publicly disgraced. There's no great wedding celebration for them in the midst of that. And they were probably going to be a couple of people that were going to be shunned now by their families because they chose to trust God and they chose to follow him. And then we come to the night of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 7. And this is where we, we find out the, about what happens with the inn. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem and we find no room in the inn for them. I mean, and that's the only place that talks about the inn is there at the end of that verse. There's no place for them in the inn. So why was that? Why did they come all the way to Bethlehem and then they have no place to stay? Well, first of all, when we, when we hear the word inn, what do we think of? We think of like, you know, Holiday Inn or a Motel 6 or, you know, something like that. Bethlehem in that age was a small town. It was probably on a typical day about, you know, 300 people. Obviously, the size of the town would have swollen during this time as everybody went back for uh, the, the census. And that, but there was not in a town that size, there would not have been a building that was just set aside for travelers coming through to stop and, and have a spare room. The word for inn that's used there is actually a word that's commonly used um, for a, a guest room. 
And so what Luke is most likely saying is that there's no room for Mary and Joseph with Joseph's family that's there in Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem, the reason they went to Bethlehem, that's where Joseph's family was from. So Joseph would have definitely had relatives in Bethlehem. And that's who Mary and Joseph would have gone to stay with. And for whatever reason, whether it's because there are a lot of other relatives in town because of the census, or in my opinion, I believe it was probably because Mary and Joseph were being shunned by Joseph's family because they were seen as they didn't wait for the betrothal period to be over. And their family would have thought that they had had sex before marriage and so they would have been being shunned for that reason. And so they would have said, we don't want to give you a room, we're... You know, we disapprove of what it appears you guys did. And so we're not going to give you a room, but we will do something. I mean, we're, we're, this is a culture, and the, the Middle Eastern culture is a culture that values hospitality above, above almost any other social, social virtues. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're shunning you guys. We think you're, you're social outcasts, but, you know, so there's no, we won't give you a room here in the house, but you know what? We'll let you sleep in the pen where the animals um, would have been. We'll give, we'll give you a spot out there. Um, and, and it's probably not, you know, when we think of the typical um, manger scene, probably, once again, not exactly what we picture. Um, it was probably more likely than anything a cave that was underneath the house where they kept the sheep and the animals and the goats. Wood would have been very, very scarce in Bethlehem. If you, if you go online, you Google, you look at any pictures from the, the, the region around Bethlehem, there, there's bushes and stuff, but there's very, very few trees. And so they wouldn't have been able to, to erect a, a wood um, you know, stable or anything like that there, even the manger. Go ahead and go to the next picture. Uh, I think we got a picture. That is probably this wood feeding trough is probably the type of manger that they laid Jesus in. Something like that. Because wood was so scarce, they weren't going to take the wood and use it to build something just simply um, to feed their animals. So try, try and picture that. What we've got here, you've got these two teens. They're alone, probably in a cave that just stinks like dung. It's got just decades, probably centuries worth of dung just caked on the floor. And... The only place they have, that's where they are to give birth to the Son of God. And then they have to lay him in the stone trough that's used for feeding the sheep. And that's where the God of the universe sent his son Jesus to come to earth as a baby into the most humble circumstances because that's how much he loved us. And, I mean, that gives us a a picture of God's love for us. But honestly, if we stop there at just that first night of Jesus' life there in Bethlehem, I think our picture of God's love for us is really incomplete. And so we want to finish looking at a couple verses from 1 John to really fill out the picture of just how much God's love loves for us. Because it isn't just the birth of Jesus that shows us the love of God. Because it's amazing to think about the great almighty God of the universe coming to earth as a baby. And that should fill us all this Christmas season with awe and wonder and amazement. But if that was all that Jesus had did, had done, it would have been meaningless. He didn't just come 
to earth to be born as a baby and to live. Because God showed his love for us, not just through Jesus coming and being born, but also he showed his love for us when Christ gave his life for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, without the cross, Christmas would be meaningless. The birth of Jesus Christ in and of itself doesn't show us how much God loves us. The reason Christ came was to give his life for us. And that's the demonstration of God's love for us. Christ had to come. He had to live a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And by giving his life as that perfect sacrifice, he satisfied the wrath of God. That's what that, that big 50-cent word in there, propitiation, that's quite simply what that word means. It means a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. Jesus gave his life for us to turn away the wrath of God, to be the sacrifice for our sins. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And by him sending his son and giving his life, Jesus could be that sacrifice for our sins. And that's how much God loves us. And when he, his love came to that town that first night in Bethlehem, in the person of Jesus Christ, that was the beginning of the greatest example of the love of God that we have. It began with his birth, it continued on through his death, and it still continues today because John's going to tell us that Jesus, or that God shows his love for us now as he continues to abide in us. Look at verses 11 through 16 in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that if we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So that we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Four times in those six verses, John talks about how God lives in us. And that is a demonstration of his love. In verse 15, he says that if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in us. In verse 13, he says that we know he abides in us because he has given us his spirit. Verse 12 he says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. His love is brought to its full expression through us as we love one another. We've seen God's love in the birth of Jesus. We've seen it in the death of Jesus. And now our calling as followers of Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Christ here on earth today, is we are to be the living embodiment of that love of God to the world. That's part of our calling as a follower of Christ. To, love, to show God's love to others by loving them the way that Christ has loved us. So just briefly, let me just bring this home um, this morning for, for all of us. Um, you know, and hopefully it didn't shatter too many of your, uh, 
notions about Christmas. Um, I didn't even get into the wise men and why in my house they're always on the other side of the room and never at the nativity. That's a whole other thing you can ask me about later. Um, but just ask my kids. That's the truth. That's the way it is. Um, but, you know, this morning, here's the thing I want you to remember. That the greatest example we have of God's love for us is the life of Christ. And that begins with the birth of Jesus. And as we embark on this Christmas season, hopefully this year, every time you remember about the birth of Jesus this year, you're going to remember that God loved this world so much that he sent his son Jesus into the most humble circumstances that we can imagine so that he could be born and live and ultimately give his life as the, um, as the sacrifice for our sins. And if you're here this morning and you've never, as John says in verse 15, you know, confessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you've never accepted that sacrifice that Jesus gave when he, he came and he lived so he could be that perfect sacrifice for us. If you've never accepted that for yourself this morning, I would hope that maybe this morning you might consider taking that step and deciding to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Because that is the message of Christmas. That's why we celebrate over 2,000 years later a little baby who was born in such humble circumstances and who ultimately has changed the world because of God's love for you and for me. So if you've never accepted that, I would encourage you this morning to trust him and to follow him. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, this Christmas season, use this as a reminder for all of us of how much God has loved us and how we are now called to go and to love others and to be that example as we demonstrate God's, um, our love for God and his love um, for other people. And so be looking this year throughout the Christmas season for ways that we can demonstrate that and a, a great one that we have and why we're doing what we're going to be doing tonight in the Christmas outreach is it is just one way that we can demonstrate to our community how much God loves them. And so I, I, my prayer is that you guys will all be back here tonight as we kind of help our city kick off the Christmas celebration and we demonstrate God's love by trying to love our community in the best way that we can. Let's pray.